Have you ever heard of calling someone a goat? Now, by goat, I don't mean the little hairy things at the petting zoo. I mean, have you ever heard someone called the G-O-A-T? If you're a sports fan, maybe you've read a headline like this. Tom Brady wins sixth Super Bowl, G-O-A-T. It's okay if you want to boo Tom Brady. I'm okay with that. Or maybe if you've read a headline like this. Tiger Woods wins Masters, resumes pursuit of G-O-A-T. As you probably know, G-O-A-T is an acronym, and it stands for the greatest of all time. The idea behind the acronym, the greatest of all time, is that if you're going to call someone great, they have to have done something truly great. To say it another way, extraordinary claims about a person requires that person to have extraordinary credentials. They have to back up that claim. And in our text today from Mark chapter 2, Jesus makes an extraordinary claim about himself, that he has the authority to forgive sins. And he proves it through an extraordinary work. He heals a paralyzed man. Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sins is extraordinary because it's something that only God can do. And it's also extraordinary news because it meets our greatest need. And if his claim is indeed true, then it demands a response. So I want to show you today three responses to the authority of Jesus. The response of humble dependence, the response of hardened doubt, and the response of happy indifference. Let's look at the first response the response of humble dependence in verses 1 through 5. Now, verses 1 through 4 kind of give us some context to this miracle. Jesus is teaching in the town of Capernaum. It was a prosperous fishing town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we know from reading Mark chapter 1 that Jesus has established something like a home base for his public ministry in the town of Capernaum. He's likely staying with his disciples, Peter and Andrew, in their home. And that's why the text tells us in verse 1 that Jesus has come home. This is his home base of ministry. Already in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus display amazing authority. He calls disciples to himself to follow him. He teaches with amazing authority. He casts out spirits, demonstrating authority over the spiritual realm. He heals people, demonstrating authority over the physical realm. And as word about Jesus and his authority begins to spread, a crowd begins to gather around him. And as Jesus' popularity begins to grow, so does the opposition to his ministry. And so it's to this crowd, these curious spectators and these religious leaders that oppose Jesus, that Jesus is teaching the word. And a crowd is gathered around the house and Four men come to have a paralytic healed, and there's so many people around that they can't get into Jesus. And houses in those days had flat roofs, usually had a stairway along the side that you could access the roof, and the roof was made from mud. And so they get this idea, we'll take our friend and up onto the roof, and we'll dig a hole in the roof, and we'll lower him at the feet of Jesus. And that's what they do. It's a surprising scene. 
And the only thing more surprising than what these guys do is what Jesus says in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He said, sons, your sins are forgiven. We're surprised that Jesus would say that because we expect him to heal this man. He's come, obviously, to be healed, but Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Now, we know from reading elsewhere in the scriptures that sickness and paralysis can be a direct result of sin in a person's life. So maybe Jesus is forgiving his sins because this guy has sinned and caused his own paralysis. But we also know that sickness can be just part of living in the fallen, a fallen world, and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so we've contributed to the world's fallenness. And this teaches us a principle in verse 5 that our greatest need is not for Jesus to fix all our problems, but to forgive our sins. You might remember in about a year ago, there was a soccer team in Thailand that wanted to celebrate one of their teammates' birthdays. And so they went into a cave and, and kind of went on an adventure together. And they were surprised and water levels in the cave began to rise and they got trapped inside. They couldn't get out, so they had to retreat further and further into the cave, and eventually they were two miles in the cave, and we all watched, the world watched, and were captivated by how would they get these guys out of there, and we celebrated when they rescued somebody, the rescue divers came in and got the kids out. I want, I want you to put yourself in that cave for a minute. Totally dark. The only thing between you and the light is two miles of water through enclosed spaces. There's nothing you can do to get out of the cave. You're completely trapped. In that moment, whatever your problems may be, marriage problem, financial problem, health problem, whatever they may be, your greatest need isn't for your problem to be fixed. It's for a rescue diver to come in with oxygen and light and a guide rope to swim you out. Friends, that's what Jesus has done for us. He has met our greatest need. This is the news in verse 5. This is the news of Mark's gospel. It's the news of the Bible that Jesus came to forgive our sins and meet our greatest need. In Mark 1.4, Mark tells us that John the Baptist appeared proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In verses 14 and 15, he says, Jesus came proclaiming the good news, saying, repent of your sins and believe the gospel. In 138, Jesus says, that is why I came, to proclaim this good news. In Mark 2, 17, he says, I came not, call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. This was the promise in Jeremiah 31. In the Old Testament, the Lord said, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This was the message of the apostles. In Acts 13, Paul said, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And in Colossians 2, he said, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. Friends, we have good news today that our Savior that was promised has come. He has authority to meet our greatest need, and he says to us, sons, daughters, your sins are forgiven. Not only does verse 5 tell us that Jesus meets our greatest need, but it shows us how we get in on it. How do we get forgiveness? How is it credited to our account? 
and that's through faith. Verse 5 says, Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. It seems in the paralytic and his friends that Mark's given us a picture of what true faith in Jesus really looks like. Think about the paralytic for a second. His faith looked like humble dependence on Jesus alone to meet his greatest need. It looked like trusting in Jesus to do for him what he could not do for himself. It looked like admitting his helplessness and finding his ultimate hope in Jesus. We live in a day when popular preachers teach that faith is believing in God to get what you want. That if you just have enough faith, God will fix all your problems and If you just have enough faith, God will prosper you economically and professionally. But verse 5 flips that idea on its head. Because if it wasn't for this man's affliction, he would have never been brought to Jesus. Charles Simeon, evangelical pastor, 1700s in Cambridge, England, said, If the paralytic had never been disordered, he had never been brought to Jesus. Had he never come to Jesus, his sins had never been forgiven. Would he not rejoice, yea, does he not rejoice even to this very hour that God ever sent him that affliction? I don't know what's brought you to church today. Maybe you have an affliction, health issue, marriage issue, family issue, financial issue. I just tell you based on the authority of God's word and personal experience that God often uses the hard things in our life to take our eyes off the things that we want and to focus them on what we ultimately need, which is a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Many of you know my story. I came to faith through a broken marriage, and as hard as that experience was, God used it to show us our need for forgiveness and He used it to bring us to salvation, and as hard as it was, I can say that hardly a day goes by when I don't thank God for that affliction. We also see in the man's friends a picture, another picture of true faith. Verse 5 said, when Jesus saw their faith, talking about the man and his friends, when he saw their faith, God moved So another aspect we can learn from this, from true faith, is that true faith works itself out in loving actions towards other people. This is what the Apostle James meant in chapter 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. True faith, living faith, works. That's why we do so many of the things that we do here at College Park. That's why we do summer kids clubs and movies on the lawn so that we can bring our friends to the feet of Jesus and they can hear the message of his forgiveness. This is why we do special needs ministry because Jesus has compassion on us and he, has, he values every life and the gospel has something to say to those with disabilities and their caregivers that Jesus has the power to heal but even if he doesn't, his power is displayed in weakness and he has purposes and plans and good plans behind suffering and that one day he will return and there'll be no more wheelchairs, no more therapies, no more caregivers, no more paralysis, no more pain. 
And this miracle in Mark chapter 2 is a down payment on that promise. This is why we do parish shepherding at College Park. We've divided up the members based on where they live and assigned members to pastors and elders so that we can share the love of God with people when they're in times of need. One of the privileges I've had as a lay elder is to lead a committee of pastors and elders that are working to identify and develop some people for a new office in our church called the Office of Parish Deacon. We're looking for some people to assist us in caring for the church. And you'll hear more about that as we ask you to confirm some people later this year, but I'd ask you just to pray that God would help us in identifying and developing people to help us care for the church. The first response to the authority of Jesus is humble dependence. It's faith in Jesus' authority to forgive sins and working out our faith and love towards others. Second response to the authority of Jesus is the response of hardened doubt. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Look at the response of the religious leaders. God's word says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The, when Luke tells this story, he tells us that in addition to scribes, there were also Pharisees in the crowd listening to Jesus teach. And the scribes and the Pharisees have not come to learn about God from Jesus. They've come to discredit Jesus, to test Jesus. And I want you to see that they're asking two questions about Jesus, a why question and a who question. The scribes and the Pharisees were known for their rigid adherence to the Old Testament law. And in fact, they even developed some, their own man-made rules that they followed that protected people from violating the law. The uh, scribes were part of the Pharisee, the party of the Pharisees. They were like the professional theologians, the interpreters of the law, the, the lawyers, the writers of contracts. All throughout Mark's gospel, he's given us a series of narratives in chapter two, a series of narratives focused on the opposition to Jesus. And in every one of the narratives, the, the Pharisees are asking a why question. In verse seven, they say, why does this man speak like that? In verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 18, why don't your disciples fast? In verse 23, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, the religious leaders keep the law. They're trying to pursue favor with God through good works, through keeping the law. And when Jesus comes on the scene and opposes their program for righteousness, they oppose him. They deny that he could be God. So they ask a who question about him. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this man think he is? Now, Pharisees and the scribes, they're knowledgeable of the Old Testament. They're right on their theology on that point. All sin, even our sins against one another, are ultimately an offense against God. David, when he committed sin with Bathsheba, he prayed to God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because all sin is ultimately an offense against God, only God can forgive sin. So the Pharisees are right about that. 
they're wrong about Jesus. If he is, in fact, God, he is no blasphemer. See, these are the questions that we all must ask about Jesus. Do we need forgiveness or don't we? Does Jesus have authority to forgive or doesn't he? Is he God or is he a blasphemer? Alan Cole, an Anglican scholar and missionary, wrote of this passage again and again during the life of Jesus. The same dilemma was to reappear. If he were not divine, then he was indeed a blasphemer. For he must be either God or mad or bad, as the old saying runs. Jesus was either crazy, he was a liar, he was who he said he was. And if he was in fact God, if he did come to forgive sins, then we are ultimately accountable to him. The scribes couldn't see their need for forgiveness because they thought they could earn righteousness through religious works. And I wonder if we don't think similar things about ourselves today. Maybe our culture is not as religious as this society, but we do doubt our need for forgiveness. We say things to ourselves like, well, I, I basically have a good heart, or my good works are outweigh the bad. And we also doubt the holiness and the authority of God. We say things like, well, God's basically a God of love, and when I meet him, he'll probably let me off the hook. But friends, the Bible has language for thinking like this, and it's called presuming upon the kindness of God. In Romans 2, 3 through 5, Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The most tragic mistake that we can ever make is to assume that our sins are not that bad and that God is not that holy. Nothing we do will ever earn us a place in heaven, but the good news of Jesus is that he's done everything needed for us to be forgiven. Because he was God, he lived the perfect life for us and established a track record of righteousness. He died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins, and he rose from the dead as proof that his work was sufficient and that new life is available to all who humbly depend on him and not in their own righteousness. You see, it's a question of, are we depending upon our own works or the work of Jesus? The great irony of the hardened doubt of the scribes is that those who don't see their need for forgiveness condemn the Savior to death on a cross, providing the means of forgiveness for those who would see their need. Don't doubt your need for forgiveness or Jesus' authority don't presume upon God's kindness, but turn to Jesus in humble dependence and rejoice in who he is and what he's done to earn our forgiveness. The third and final response to the authority of Jesus is happy indifference. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Jesus, being God, knows the thoughts of the scribes. 
He knows our thoughts. He knows the questions that they're asking in their mind, and Jesus asked them a question in response. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to heal a paralyzed man? See, Jesus isn't really asking which words are easier to speak. He's asking which reality is easier to see. You see, forgiveness of sins is an inward reality. It comes from renewal of the Holy Spirit. But healing a paralyzed man is immediately verifiable. If Jesus speaks a word of healing, thank you. Yep. Just throw this in your pocket. This is my rescue diver right here. <laughs> Just stick that in your pocket and we'll be good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Nick. If Jesus speaks a word of healing to this paralyzed man and he doesn't get up, then we know Jesus is complete fraud. But if he does get up and walk, then Jesus is God. So Jesus is proposing a test of his divinity. He, we've already seen that sickness, the paralysis, is an effect of sin in the world. And if Jesus can heal the effect of sin, then he has authority over sin. And if he has authority over sin, he can forgive sin. And if he can forgive sin, then he is God. Verse 10 says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Verse 10 is the key verse in this passage. But that you may know. Jesus wants us to know that he has authority to forgive sins because he is the God sinned against. But we also see one more response to his authority, and that's the response of happy indifference. In verse 12, it says that the crowd was amazed and they glorified God. That word amazed in the original language means to be astonished or confused or even dumbfounded. The same word is used in Acts chapter 8 of the Samaritans who were amazed at the magic of Simon the magician. It's also used of Simon the magician who was amazed at the works of Philip, Philip the evangelist when he preached the gospel and did signs and wonders. But what's true in the case of Simon the magician is also true with the crowd at Capernaum, and that's that their amazement at supernatural work didn't translate into saving faith. They didn't repent. When Matthew retells this story in his gospel, he says that the crowd saw it and were afraid. See, they recognized the supernatural power, and they glorified God. They saw that the power came from God, but they said the power had been given to men. See, they didn't see Jesus as God. They just saw that God had given him some temporary kind of power. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the cities where he ministered in Capernaum, where this miracle was done, is on the list of cities. Matthew says that Jesus began to, began, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. 
This is Jesus talking. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Think about that for a second. Jesus cares more about superficial faith than he does about the greatest Old Testament example of sexual immorality. See, the crowd in Capernaum was amazed and they were amused, but it didn't they didn't respond in repentance and faith. They, they saw value in the teaching of Jesus and they were happy to accept Jesus' help if he would do a miracle for them. But there was no change of life, no change of heart, no hatred of their sin, no love for God, no thankfulness for his mercy, no hope in his promises, and no heart for hurting people. The crowd was around Jesus, but they weren't in awe of Jesus. They came for the spectacle, but they missed the Savior. Verse 12 is a warning to us against superficial faith, and it's a call to the real thing. See, the difference between superficial faith and the true thing is that Christianity is enabled by a change of heart. God's spirit dwells within us, and he enables us to see our need for forgiveness and to respond in saving faith. And not only do we trust in Jesus as our savior of our sins, but we agree to follow him as Lord because we love him. Our heart has been changed. And the glorious reality of that change of heart is that it comes from God's own power. It's God's spirit working inside us. The Bible has different phrases and terms to refer to that reality. It's like being born again or being a new creation. It's like God opening our heart or being made alive or becoming light in the Lord. It looks like being spiritually paralyzed in the word of Jesus giving us the power to get up and walk. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Robert Munger was a Presbyterian minister and seminary professor, and he delivered a famous sermon in the 1940s called My Heart, Christ's Home. And his sermon was published in a booklet, and millions of copies have been distributed. And the, the story is really a parable of the Christian life. It's about how Christ takes up residence in the home of our hearts and goes from room to room, and he makes things new and conforms things after his own image and desire and will. Munger writes in his sermon that one evening I invited Jesus Christ into my heart. What an entrance he made. It was not a spectacular, emotional thing, but very real. It was the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire in the cold hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness, and he filled the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. I have never regretted opening the door to Christ, and I never will. At the end of Boyd's sermon, he describes handing the key and the title of the home of his heart to Jesus. And he says, here, here's it all, all that I am and have forever. Now you run the house. 
I'll just remain with you as servant and friend. See, when God takes up residence in your heart, it makes a difference and changes things. The difference between superficial faith and the real thing is that you have newfound love for God and Jesus isn't just part of your life, but he becomes your life. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus part of your life or is he your life? Because if his spirit lives in you, it changes everything. And you can't be indifferent to Jesus. The meaning of our text today is clear that Jesus, as, div- as God's son, has authority to forgive sinners. His extraordinary claim was proven through an extraordinary work. He healed a paralyzed man. See, the question from our text today that we should ask isn't who is Jesus? That, that, the answer to that question is clear. Jesus is the divine son of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the ultimate question from our text is who is Jesus to you? And what is your response to his divine authority? Will you respond with happy indifference, with hardened doubt, or with humble dependence by trusting in his work for your forgiveness and worshiping him as God and serving him as Lord? To all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God, and he says to us, sons, daughters, your sins are forgiven. you're a Christian and you're, here, and you're here today, when you hear those words, something happens in your heart. You can't help but have your heart stirred to want to worship Jesus for what he's done for you. And I want you to join me in worshiping Jesus. I'm going to close by reading from Daniel chapter 7. The key verse in our passage today is verse 10, and Jesus says that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It was a Hebrew way of emphasizing Jesus' humanity. He's a son of man. He was human, but he was way more than that. He was also the divine son of God, and he's alluding with that title, son of man, to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of the future, which includes the end times, and God is seated on his throne in judgment, and evil is defeated, and his people are saved, and one like a son of man comes riding on the clouds, and he stands in the presence of God, and is given a kingdom and glory and eternal praise. It's an awesome vision of the authority of the son of man, Jesus. Worship with me as I read an excerpt from Daniel 7 together. As I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, don't doubt this Jesus. Don't be indifferent to him. But depend on him as your savior and worship him as God and serve him as king. If you want to talk more about this saving message of forgiveness, we'll have elders and pastors here at the front of the service that can talk with you through that. We'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you're experiencing a difficult time in your life, we'd love to pray for you and share the love of God with you by praying for you. College Park, go now in peace. Live for Jesus. Glorify him for his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this text. I thank you for your authority, that you're able to rescue us. Lord, we praise you for that. I pray, Lord, that if there's any here that have heard that message and haven't responded, that they would respond in humble dependence on Jesus because he's worth it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.